0: View, and when it's still 102 degrees in September, I want to get out in the late afternoon and hear a sermon about uh, the political and military uh, details of the late Iron Age. So, to, and because I know you like that so much, we're not just going to talk about it today. We're going to do a whole series on it. <laughs> Um, actually, what we're talking about really is the military and political drama of the late Iron Age, um, because Israel, the nation, got taken into captivity in Babylon around the end of the Iron Age. And their exile in Babylon, the Bible has continually used from that point onward as a metaphor of how we're supposed to think about the world and our place in it as Christians and as the church, that we're exiled. Which is a odd way to think because it's not really that true of us in some ways, but it is in others, and that's what we're going to talk about. Thinking about what it means to be a resident alien in the place where you live, even if you're from here, grew up here, and everything. That as a Christian, you wind up um, being dislocated somehow from your place, and you wind up feeling like you don't fit and like you're odd, and your values and ethics are, are different, and things just don't work together like this is home in the way that they used to. So if you notice in the New Testament reading, it was the beginning of the book of 1 Peter, and Peter called the Christians in that book the elect exiles of the diaspora, which sounds super Jewish, right? Uh, the diaspora is always the way that Jews think of themselves scattered in the world. Peter called the Christians exiles of the diaspora people who weren't Jews, people who weren't uh, away from home for the most part, he still called it exiles, which is interesting. And, and basically saying that people who are in the church, no matter if you live where you grew up, your life is going to be like a life of exile. And figuring that out is gonna be a help to you spiritually, to learn how to navigate in the world in the decisions you make, your ethics, your values, choices you make, just how you understand yourself in the world. Most of what we're going to talk about from this comes from the example of uh, Daniel and his friends. In the book of Daniel, they lived in Babylon and had to sort out how to live for Jesus there. And that's an anachronism, I guess. They had to learn how to live for God there. But we're going to take a couple of weeks at the beginning and look at in Jeremiah at a letter that he wrote to people as they were going into exile sort of to give them instruction, and I think it's pretty pertinent for us to figure out how to think of ourselves as exiles in America and in Tucson, and how to fit ourselves into life in light of that. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please help us. So we pray that you would let us see ourselves as you see us, um, and that you make us open and humble to be able to hear that. I pray you help us where we're distracted or where we have biases that push back against what you say, uh, open our hearts and minds to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, Jeremiah 1, verses 1 through, uh, 29, verses 1-7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after uh, King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, sort of get your hands around the idea of exile. You kind of have to ask two questions. Like, if we're exiles, where do we go into exile from? And um, where do we live now? And those seem like obvious questions, but they're not that easy. Um, for the people of Israel, they understood, they'd gone into exile from Jerusalem. That was the place where God had his people. They had a a political national expression even back then. And they were God's people in the Holy Land with God. That's where they came from. And now they know good and well where they are. They're in Babylon, uh, the capital city of their enemy, Uh, their very cruel enemy, their very hated enemy. They're in exile in Babylon. They came from Jerusalem. So for us to be exiles, you know, we don't live in Babylon or Jerusalem. It doesn't seem, but those cities in the rest of the Bible sort of take on a, a symbolic significance. Uh, Jerusalem, from then on, and from the time of Jesus on, becomes uh, a description of the church. Right, Mount Zion is the church now. The people of God, the holy nation, are the church wherever they are scattered in the world, and Babylon comes to represent. Basically all the nations of the world, especially empires. So in the book of Revelation, uh, John, in his uh, wild apocalyptic dream, uh, talks about Babylon as sort of the epitome of world empires. He's clearly in that book talking about the Roman Empire, which is way later, you know, 500 years after the Babylonian one. But then sort of applies it to any empire that uh, exists after that. Any of the nations of the world that we find ourselves living in sort of take the place of Babylon in the scripture. And Jerusalem is always the church in the midst of those nations. So when we say uh, we're in exile as Christians, we don't mean that we're in exile from the Holy Land, from it, from Jerusalem itself, the, you know, Palestine today. That, that's uh, That wouldn't make any sense. We don't mean we're in exile because... We used to have this sweet Christian nation, but now it's deteriorated, so now we feel like exiles in our own home. Doesn't mean that at all. We're in exile from Eden, basically. Uh, our rebellion against God got us kicked out of the garden right at the beginning. And our home is the restored Eden, the new creation. Jesus is fixing the world, setting it back the way it's supposed to be. And that's our true home. And until we get there, we're not home. We're in exile in the in the nations now. So, when you think about your own nation in the Bible, is America Jerusalem or Babylon? Is Babylon right? <laughs> Be nice. It's tantalizing sometimes to think it's not, but but America, like the other empires of the world, is Babylon. The ones over whom Jesus Christ is asserting his authority. And when he says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, he means ours too. We may like ours better than some other people have or do, but it's Babylon. And when we think about Jerusalem, it's the church in the midst of the nations. We're like a city in the middle of a city, an alternative city in the middle of the city as a group of exiles. And That's how we're supposed to think of ourselves. No matter what nation you're in, uh, no matter what time period you live in, Christians are to understand themselves to be exiles in their own nations. And so that's how we have to learn to see ourselves. And that sounds easy a little bit, but it's pretty complicated, actually. It really touches on a lot of questions we have about ethics and values and where to draw lines and why we feel so odd and displaced and homesick in the world we live in and how we're supposed to relate to Uh, the structures of the uh, empire in which we live uh, financially and politically, and it's hard and it's complicated and it's murky a lot of the time, but we're going to try to take some extra time this fall to think about what does it mean for us to live well uh, as people who love and know Jesus in the midst of the nations of the world as exiles. So that's where we're headed. Uh, Two of the things that it means for us to be exiles we're going to talk about today that come out of this letter uh, the first is, you gotta get used to the idea. Because if you live where you grew up and you live in a country you like, the idea of exile is harder to embrace, emotionally, and you know, it just doesn't fit. You know, I'm so used to saying we, and meaning my country, um, and I don't feel any dissonance with that. You know, I was watching that Netflix documentary they did about 9-11, and, uh, rethinking and reliving some of those things and man we feels like me too and i don't feel much of a disconnection i don't feel like an exile when i'm thinking about those things but on some level it's important for me to feel like an exile and that's what uh, we're going to learn from this Uh, getting used to being a stranger in your own home a little bit i remember when i first moved to tucson occasionally people would ask me directions and go I don't know. I'm, I'm a stranger here myself. You know, I, I don't know any directions yet. You know, there are four mountain ranges that you can see from everywhere that orient even the simplest person. And I, can kept, I couldn't tell east from west for the longest time when I moved here. <laughs> so what a good person to ask directions, of. But the, uh, the thing as a Christian is as you go along in the Christian life, and it seems to get worse as time goes on, at least in my experience, you feel more and more dislocated from your home. You, know, you feel more and more like an oddball and a stranger uh, as a Christian. And um, I, I guess it's supposed to feel that way, but it's not super pleasant to feel that way. Um, we're not exactly like the Hebrews because their exile was different and worse than ours in a lot of ways. The ways we're like them, though, is the sense of displacement, knowing that we're not home and that we don't fit here and we're not going to fit until we're really home. And when Jesus has finished his project of fixing the world, preparing a place for us and comes to come back to be with us, right? That's uh, that's when we'll feel at home and feel normal again, maybe for the first time in a long time. But you're odd here. Your values are different. Your ethics are different. You know, there's going to be somewhere where your ethics as a Christian sound preposterous to the people that you live around. And that always makes you feel a little lonely and strange and, you know, odd when people look at you like you're a moral nut because you're also a biblical ethic, you know. I don't know who likes that, but you do feel that way, and you long for home, and you can't go. And the the Hebrews felt that, you know, they got carried off into exile, and you know, there they are in a place they hated, and everything's different, and they think their gods have beaten Israel's god, and uh, their kids are starting to act Babylonian, you know, they're they're going to their schools and wearing their clothes, and listening to their music, and speaking Hebrew or for Syria, I don't know. But, you know, it's like, ah, we're supposed to be in Jerusalem, and I hate that my kids are here, and I don't like it when they wear the clothes that look like the Babylonian clothes, and when they talk like they do, and, you know, this isn't right, it's not okay, I need to get home. And that, some of that feeling, I think, is shared by all Christians who are called exiles in the world. Um, but it wasn't temporary for them. You know, they were going to be there 70 years, which means basically everybody grown was going to be dead and never go back to Jerusalem. So they're thinking, and I'm going to get buried here. I hate this place. I'm going to get buried here. I I come from Jerusalem, and I'm going to get buried in Babylon. That's the worst. So they felt that dislocation. The difference is they got sent there because they were in trouble. And uh, presumably you didn't get sent here because you're in trouble. Maybe you did, but... um, they got sent into exile out of the Holy Land because they kept bowing their necks against God and saying, we're not going to do what you want us to do." Uh, they kept imitating the habits and the culture of the pagans around them, having been worn over and over again by prophets and things and God finally said, "That's it. you know I'm cutting it off. It was a huge act of very severe discipline that God sent his people into exile. That's not our story. Uh, we're not in exile because we're in trouble. The other reason he sent them into exile is so they do their job, finally, because their job as his people in the, in the world was they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be uh, blessed by God, Abraham's descendants and family, so they could bless all the nations on earth and be like an attractive missionary force for all the other nations to say, come in and find welcome and grace from the true God. And instead, they said, wow, we're the favored ones of God and we're just going to sit here and enjoy that and not care about the nations around us. They never would go. Like the best missionary story in the whole Old Testament is Jonah. And he hated the people in Nineveh and wouldn't go. When God made him go, he went the other way, right? That was kind of the picture of Israel. We aren't going to do our job in the nation. We're going to be, you know, xenophobic and nationalistic and just keep our blessings for us. And so, you know, they never did a good job at this. And that was part of why they got sent in exile, so they'd start doing it. Right? These exiles that went to Babylon wound up talking about the true and living God, the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar came into really close contact with the uh, God of Israel, as we'll talk about in the book of Daniel. But Uh, He sort of like forced them into missions, you know, to care about the people around them. Um, Again, I don't think we're called exiles because we're in trouble about that, but we're sent into exile in order to do that. Like, we're sent, scattered in the nations of the world, so that we can be about God's agenda. You know, spreading the good news and hope of Jesus Christ to people who are unfamiliar with it. All right. So, we're sent into exile as emissaries or ambassadors, uh, people to represent Jesus' uh, cause and his good news in the world. And that's a big deal for us to be in while we're in exile, that he scattered us because he wants the whole world to find hope in Jesus Christ. And he expects us to be involved in that agenda as well. So... But that that leaves us with a nice strong sense of purpose, but also a strong sense of loneliness and dislocation as exiles. You know what a third culture kid is? Some of you do, because some of you are third culture kids. But uh, a third culture kid is usually a missionary or somebody who was in <coughs> with parents working foreign service, and they are American, but they grow up in a different country. And so when they're in their new country, they they feel very American and different because they're American, but when they come home, they feel very much defined by the country they've been raised in. And they say third culture kids only feel at home on the airplane. Okay. You know, that's the only place that feels natural to them. And there's a little bit of that feeling for any Christian, really. Because we know we don't fit here, um, but we can't get to where we do fit. And so, um, getting used to that you know, it takes a little reflection. To like, see your life, if you're in place you grew up, that you like, and you got to go to the school you wanted to go to, and here you are, or maybe you chose to move to Tucson to do a job or just deliver to enjoy it, and to think that even the place I picked is not home for me, I don't, I don't even get to feel home here, it just takes some getting used to. It. And, but it's helpful because as a Christian you're inevitably gonna feel odd, and it's nice to realize why. Oh, you're supposed to feel odd here, and so you need that. Second thing, first get used to being in exile and thinking of yourself as an exile. The second thing is how do you, how do you respond to it? Like what's your attitude supposed to be towards Babylon, towards Tucson, towards America? What are you supposed to, what's your attitude supposed to be toward the place where you don't feel at home and where you're in exile and where you feel off? And uh, that's a complicated answer. You have a lot of different conflicting thoughts and emotions, you're going to have a lot of decisions to make about how much you assimilate and how much you refuse to assimilate. And um, for Daniel and his friends, it's very interesting to see how they sorted a lot of that out. And uh, We'll look at that. But they're kind of different approaches. Like, if I'm a Christian in a world that's mostly not Christian, um, how am I supposed to feel and act? Like, what's my attitude supposed to be towards the people around me and towards the structures of the nation around me? Like, how am I supposed to think about that? For some people, the attitude is opposition. You know, what? I'm going to dig in, I'm not going to compromise no matter what on anything. I don't care. I'm basically here to be a subversive and to lead the revolt when we have the chance, you know. And that's not a really unusual attitude. There was a guy, a prophet other than Jeremiah, a false prophet, who was telling everybody in the exile, Don't worry about it. Within two years, you're going to be back in Jerusalem. Just uh, dig in. Plan the revolt. uh, Be a resistance force only. Uh, Don't give any quarter to these evil Babylonians who are the enemies of God, obviously. They're pagans. They're worshiping these false gods. They're cruel. They're unjust. We've seen what they did to our families and to our country. And woe be unto them. But they are finding no friend in me. That was one uh, option, and God said, well, that's, that's a lie, that's not for me. Um, although, actually, uh, Hanani, you are gonna be through your exile within two years because in a year, you're gonna die. and <laughs> He died within a year. God said, that didn't come from me. That's not what I want you to do in Babylon. Other uh, approach is kinda like that, but less hostile, is a tribal retreat. Let's just gather us into a little huddle and be like, you know, a bunch of musk oxen that when they're threatened, they all face out with their big horns so they can all be safe inside the huddle. Let's, let's, uh, let's protect ourselves from this uh, detrimental influence of Babylonian culture on us and on our children. Let's huddle up and just talk to each other. We'll probably just buy and sell from each other. Let's just make sure we don't get tainted by those nasty Babylonian pagans and that sounds like a pretty smart idea to me and a lot of Christians you know, find that pretty compelling we're, you know, we're not even going to learn Assyrian, we're just going to speak Hebrew all the time we're not assimilating in case you wondered right? but that's not what God tells them to do either Right? have to say be really careful while you're in Babylon because it's very dangerous and threatening and dirty and you better not take any risks So He doesn't say that either. Then uh, some people take the approach of kind of being a chameleon. Hey, go along to get along, right? I can see who's in ascendancy here. Babylon's got all the military power. They've got all the economic power. You know, I could be friends with Babylon, I think. You know, I think we could find ways to get along. And so, you know, there's a little bit of that approach to just say, we're not going to stand on principle about, you know, what our ethics are, what our... Dietary rules are anything like that. Let's you know, Let's be practical. You know, you gotta you gotta live in the world. You know? so there's that approach. Um, also not recommended. <laughs> not the good approach. Um, then there, another one that's not really mentioned much in in the Babylon story because they hated where they were. But if you're in exile somewhere you like, then your response as a Christian can be, be to become a tourist. And just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live here and enjoy the things I love about this place and just kind of not involve myself or care very much about any of the problems of the place or what's going on. I'll just kind of use the place instead of loving it. And that'll probably be okay. And again, God has more in mind for us than that. Those aren't the ways he told his people to engage when they're in exile. Instead, he says what? Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take... Wives and sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage if they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply and don't decrease. Now that language in the Bible is, is basically peacetime language. In other words, don't be on a, a rebel, you know, rebellion, revolt, war footing while you're in Babylon. Uh, live like you're at peace, which is a really weird thing to say when you just got carried off to another country because they invaded you and defeated you militarily. God says, no, I want you to take a peacetime stance toward them and invest yourself uh, in long term goals there, uh, both for the sake of you and your family, but also for the sake of the people around you. Because that's what he goes on to say seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Uh, the word welfare there may say maybe prosperity, if you, if you have a different translation. I'm thinking back to those days when people brought the Bibles to church, like the Dead Tree kind of Bibles. Anyway, some of the translations say uh, prosperity there. The word is a very famous Hebrew word, shalom. It's Usually it's translated peace, but it means a much richer thing than just peace. It's it's full, flourishing, and thriving uh, with God in God's world, the way things are supposed to be, full, flourishing humanness, uh, thriving with God. And he says, I want you to seek that for the Babylonians. And I'm going to tie your thriving with me to their thriving with me. That's pretty weird, isn't it? Like, I'm going I'm to tie your thriving with God um, to the thriving with God of the people around you. Uh, because I've sent you there as my agents. So that's pretty surprising. To me, anyway, you know that um, that he doesn't want them mostly to be defensive in their posture, but he wants them uh, to love and serve and engage and seek the good of the people who've been their enemies and who dragged them into exile. And man, it was an awful scene. I mean, it was really terrible. It's so cruel. The stories, even in the Bible, you know, they try to. Clean everything up in the Bible it seems like to me when they translate, but it's uh, uh, it's grim to see what happened in the siege of Jerusalem and um, in the carrying people off into exile. And this is a hated, hated. You know, basically, they're going into, into uh, exile with ISIS you know, and told to love them and to seek their shalom. So it's very much like what Jesus said, which somehow sounds neutered or innocuous to us because it sounds Sunday schoolish. But he said, "Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, not just about them, you know? <laughs> pray for them." There was some somebody did this as a as like a a, a Twitter thread. Uh, the first one said, "Jesus, tell us how we're supposed to respond." in these strange days in our culture. And it comes back, Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you got the little ellipses of dots. <laughs> and then down below that, what else do you have? <laughs> <laughs> because it's radical to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's radical to say, seek the shalom of the city into which I've called you. It's very strange. It's very much like Jesus did, though, who came into exile to rescue us. Right? He came to a despised people who were his enemies in order to love and rescue us, not to tell us how disgusted he was with us. Right? As the New Testament say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, a life of self-sacrificial love for his enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of God's Son and how much more saved by His life. We were His enemies. He came to us and endured exile for our sakes to rescue us and bring us home. And He said, as I was sent into the world, I'm sending you into the world as my followers. And so what that means, ultimately, is that God sent you to Tucson. If you're a Christian already, God sent you to Tucson to be a missionary. You know, he may have given you an engineering gig um, Some other kind of job. Most people he doesn't call to do church work full time. But if you're an exile of the dispersion, God sent you here to be a missionary. You're here on his errand. You're here on his agenda. He knew what he was doing. He put you here. Who knows for what reason. But you're supposed to kind of get a little suspicious about it. Like, I wonder why those people just moved in next door to me. I wonder why that's the person that I connected to in this class. I wonder uh, why this person just uh, came to the cubicle next to me. I wonder what God's up to around me because I assume since he sent me here to do his bidding that there's stuff going on, there are people I need to love, there are places I need to push back uh, on where I can be of help and service in the culture around me. I'm a person who's received grace and I'm supposed to be communicating that to people around me. And so let's just don't think of ourselves that way. If you move to another country, you probably start thinking about yourself that way almost automatically. But if you're home, you don't think that way very easily. You just think, I'm at home. Uh, but you're not. You're an exile. Right? So that means for us, I'll just close with this, that we're kind of supposed to be a model home in the midst of a different city, the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And the church is supposed to be this kind of alternate city where we put on display for the sake of the people that we live around, something we can invite them into, of a group of people that love the city that they're in, that advocate for it instead of hating it and complaining about it all the time, that are appreciative, that uh, when they see things broken in the city, say, what can I do to help? Rather than just saying, this is so stupid and broken. Um, But also invite people in where they can see friendships being made across political and economic lines, which you don't see anywhere else in the culture. Or they can come in and see a place where poor people are treated with respect, Uh, They can come in and see uh, where people actually can forgive each other and still be in friends after they really hurt each other. You know, the crazy things that Jesus puts on display in our lives. They see people who have God present with them and really experience that and love Him and worship Him, which is an amazing thing to experience. People who take risks for the sake of their neighbors. People who are crazy generous. Uh, You know, the things that Jesus turns us into, we're supposed to Invite people into that. Let them get a little taste of it. A little foretaste, such as we are. A little foretaste of our real home. Inviting them to come for that real home with us. Right? You know, that's our calling, to be here, to be hospitable. Um, not to be all arrogant and grossed out about people being sinners and all that kind of thing. That's not what we're calling into exile for. We're here to seek their shalom. That's the people around you, the weird people around you, the hardy to people around you, the nice people around you. Um, that's your calling, because you're in exile. So we'll talk about this in some more detail in coming weeks. But one thing you just see, there's a whole lot more to want than just being a spiritual consumer. You know, finding a church that you like, that meets your needs, you know, that, where you have all these great friends. Uh, we're, we're called to be more than just a nice little club of people that happen to get along uh, we're here as an expat community of exiles on Jesus' mission. So I don't want us to get used to thinking that way. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, what you're doing in this church, the way you've weaved our lives together. Uh, so many of us didn't know each other at all just a couple of years ago. Uh, and we ask that you'd help us learn how to live this out, uh, to see ourselves like you see us here, to see the opportunities for your agenda here, to... Uh, See what you're up to uh, around us. And help us help each other with that too, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to forego our uh, confessional faith for the sake of time. Let me invite you to the Lord's table. Uh, You know, the Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Broken body and shed blood of bread and wine. And um, when people become Christians, they come to the church and are baptized, Uh, that's kind of a one time initiatory thing, like for Jonah this morning. Uh, But then when she grows up and embraces the faith on her own, she'll profess her faith publicly, tell the world that she's a Christian, and start taking the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper goes on and on through your life to try to give you assurance that you're loved and forgiven by God and that you're going to be welcomed uh, home to him when you die. And so uh, you're supposed to be uh, really encouraged and reassured when you come take the Lord's Supper. All right? um, if you're not already a convinced Christian, uh, don't come take the Lord's Supper yet.